and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and verse 9 is where we'll start reading in just a few minutes. Uh, we've come to the flood itself. Last week we, we read the, the sort of preamble to the flood. Uh, God has created all things. He has uh, he's issued commands, entered into covenant with Adam and Eve. They've broken that covenant. And Adam, as the representative of all humanity in breaking that covenant, not only brought death to himself, but to all of his offspring. We see that death begin to take hold in the chapters that follow as we read about uh, Cain murdering Abel and the, uh, the frankly murderous line of Cain that descends from him. But we read that note of hope that is ours as God begins uh, to reveal the, the keeping of his promises and giving Seth to Adam and Eve to replace Abel. And from Seth comes a godly line. But last week in Genesis 6 and those first eight verses, we read as those two lines begin to intermarry. And rather than the godly line causing the ungodly line to be godly, the reverse happens. And we begin to lose the godly line in the world. And there's uh, concern if we're reading and we don't know what's coming next. There ought to be concern on the part of the reader that perhaps the promise of God that there is one born in the godly line coming who will deliver us from the curse. If there is no godly line, how can he keep that promise? And God preserves that godly line. And we read about that this morning in Noah and the flood. But Noah and the flood, though, we believe that Scripture is true uh, and that this is depicted as history. Christ himself makes reference to Noah. Uh, not only Christ, but the other New Testament authors make reference to Noah uh, as a historical figure. We believe this is a historical event. Nonetheless, the greatest truth comes not in the historical nature of the event, but in what it is that God is revealing through this historical event. Often we acknowledge that one of the greatest saving acts in the Old Testament, uh, the one that, that after this event, uh, for the rest of the Old Testament, they look back to as the, the paradigm of God's saving work with his covenant people, and that is the exodus. The flood serves as a sort of twin to the exodus, emphasizing not the salvation of God, but the judgment of God. Of course, both salvation and judgment are present in both the flood narrative and the exodus. But even in the naming of them, though, we acknowledge, don't we, the, uh, the greater of the two. So that in the exodus, though there is clearly judgment against Egypt, the emphasis is on the salvation of God. And in this morning's text, in the flood, though there are great notes of God's faithfulness in salvation... The emphasis is on the, the destructive wrath of God against sinners. And so as we turn to the text here in a few minutes, the, the thing that I want to focus on is God keeping his promises. God keeping his promises in judgment. God keeping his promises in salvation. And then what it is that we are called to do in light of this truth. And so let me pray for us, and we'll read this morning Genesis 6, beginning in verse 9. Fathers, we come to your word. We pray that your spirit would indeed be at work. Lead us into the truth. Your spirit is truth. We know that you have made promises to us, not only promises that will be fulfilled on the day that Christ returns, but promises that are being fulfilled even in this moment as we gather together according to your word. And so, Father, we are counting on those promises. We are counting on your faithfulness. 
Be at work in our hearts and minds, Father. Raise the dead up to life. Restore those who are yours into the image of Christ. Prepare us, Father, for the day that Christ will return. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. 
And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a familiar narrative, but again, if you haven't read it recently, you may have noticed some details that you had forgotten. This morning, I want to look at several things. Again, God keeps his promises first in judgment. God keeps his promises in judgment. Look at chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. We see here God both pronouncing judgment, that is convicting the world of its sin, and then pronouncing sentence. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The conviction, that is, that they are under the wrath of God. And then, in verse 13, he begins the sentence, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Uh, It comes to a climax in our reading this morning in verse 17 where he's begun in the verses leading up to 17 to give Noah instructions for the building of the ark. But in 17, he explicitly states again, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Again, in 7.4, we have the judgment both pronounced and promised. Chapter 7, verse 4, he says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the grounds. Finally, in 7, 21 through 23, we read of it actually being accomplished in the narrative. Verse 21, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, bird, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. God's judgment here is depicted in a way that is is entirely thorough. Uh, He says he's going to do it. He says again he's going to do it. He says again he's going to do it. And finally, God does what he promised he would do. Judgment comes down to the earth. And God's judgment is just. That's part of what we're to see here. It's not just, and this is the easy thing that's that's easy, uh, the thing that's easy to overlook. It's not simply a statement of what he's going to do. Notice God is just. He pronounces first their guilt and then the penalty. What God is doing in the flood is a just penalty for sin. And as I said earlier, even as the exodus is the great saving act of salvation, the flood is the the great act of judgment in the world, both of them anticipating true salvation and true judgment. The flood that is depicted here is a foreshadowing of the final judgment that is coming on the last day. 
God's judgment is just. God is merciful to warn of his judgment. You remember last week, God said that there would be 120 years from the day that he acknowledges, proclaims the guilt of mankind and that the world is full of wickedness, 120 years before the judgment falls. And then here in this chapter, though the times are not added up for us, we come to the flood itself. It's been 120 years, and over the course of that 120 years, God proclaims to the world that judgment is coming. Noah not only is being saved by God, Noah is told what God is doing and why God is doing it. And both Noah's faithfulness to build the ark in anticipation of that judgment and what we are told from the rest of Scripture and from tradition is that as the ark is being built, Noah preaches to the lost around him. God is merciful to warn of his judgments. The author of Hebrews acknowledges this in 11. Listen to what he says. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God is patient in executing his judgment. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's going to go on in a few verses to use the narrative of the flood as an example of this patience of God. What's happening in this chapter that's, that's implied, that the rest of Scripture seems to understand and to communicate to us, is that both by building the ark and by preaching the gospel, Noah is a testimony to the nations. He is a testimony to the rebellious. Nonetheless, God's patience will finally come to an end, and he will execute judgment, and none will escape. This is Jesus in Luke 17. Listen to what he says. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Listen, one of the things that we must recognize in the narrative of the flood is that God is just to judge. He has the right to execute judgment. And He has executed judgment. And He has been both merciful to communicate that judgment to us through history. The judgment is that we are guilty and deserving of death. He's told us over and over and over again. We find it clearly communicated in his words that we are under the sentence of death, and it is a just sentence. He has been patient. He's not only communicated these things to us, but he has suspended that judgment 
not wanting any to perish. But do not mistake his patience for a broken promise. The judgment of God is coming. It will be absolute. None will escape except those who take refuge in Christ. His faithfulness in keeping this promise is a warning to the lost. If you are not trusting in Christ today, you may be tempted to say that generation after generation has come and gone, and where is God, and where is his judgment? And this is why Peter says, as we read a moment ago, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God's patience is intended to give time. He tells you what's coming, and then he is patient for you to respond. And what we do in the wickedness of our hearts apart from his spirit, what we do with that patience is we turn it into a foundation for unbelief. I threatens. He never does anything. Let me say to you clearly this morning, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are not in this ark that is the refuge from the storm, you will be subject to the wrath of God forever. And it will be just, and you will have no excuse. God's faithfulness in keeping this promise of judgment is not only a warning to the lost, it's also a comfort to God's people. I want to be careful how I communicate this. I don't mean to suggest that we ought to take joy in the destruction of the wicked. Perhaps we should. The, the difficulty here is we need to be careful about who we identify as the wicked. Because all of us belonged to the wicked until God saved us. And I want you to understand this, this has been such a helpful paradigm for me. That we are at war with God's enemies. To destroy the enemies of God. But do you know how we destroy those enemies according to God's word? We destroy God's enemies by proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them, that they would be snatched out of the hands of the enemy. That's what it looks like to be at war as we wait for Christ to return. God keeping the promise of judgment is a comfort to us, his people, because we know that we, by his grace and mercy, will not fall under that judgment. And we know that every wrong that is done in the history of the world receives the justice that it deserves. This is good news. It ought to be a comfort for us. God is faithful to keep the promise of judgment. And that is a threat to those who are in rebellion against him. And a comfort to those who belong to him. Second, this morning God keeps his promises in salvation. This is its, its highest statement in our text this morning is verse 18, right next to verse 17. 17 having been a clear statement of the judgment of God, 18 begins with that, that little word that so often, though it's, 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 it's got a technical name, we call it a contrasting conjunction. 
but it's filled with theological truth. It is filled with the comfort of the good news, the comfort of the gospel. So often this little word, but, comes in to tell us that we are delivered from the wrath that has been promised. But, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. We see it again in chapter 17, verse 16. As God closes the door of the ark, all of them having gone in, we see it in 7 verse 23, where in the unfolding of the historical narrative, the salvation is accomplished. Towards the end, we're told only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. God is faithful to keep his promises. He came to Noah and he said, I'm going to destroy all of humanity and everything that has breath on the earth because all are under the just judgment of God. But Noah, listen, I keep my promises and you and your offspring will be delivered from this judgment. And as the narrative unfolds, God keeps his promise. Listen, Jesus Christ is our refuge. The church has made so much of this image in the flood. That the ark, that place of refuge from the wrath of God, it anticipates Christ. Christ is our refuge. In the midst of the flood, the historical narrative, there was no place to go to escape the wrath of God but the ark. And not only was the ark the only place to go, but it was sufficient. It was perfect as a place of refuge. It carried Noah and his family through the storm of God's wrath. The Psalms 45 times use the language of refuge. That's just the one word. If we get into some of the synonyms of refuge, it just multiplies over and over again. But listen to some of the examples from the psalm. Psalm 2.12, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We not only have an instance here of the word refuge being used of Christ, but it's a refuge from what? From the wrath of God's. Refuge from God's just anger. Psalm 34 uses the language of refuge twice. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 46.1, the, the famous psalm upon which Luther based his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, says God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Psalm 57.1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Forty-five times in the Psalms, this particular word is used to describe Jesus Christ as our refuge. 
But look at what else the Psalms say about refuge. Psalm 52, 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Jesus Christ is a sure refuge for us from the wrath of God, brothers and sisters. There is no other refuge and any other refuge to which you might cling. Anything else that you may tempted to turn into an idol. Anything else that you look to for salvation, hoping that it will provide what you believe that you need, is going to fail you. There is only one refuge, and that refuge is God in Jesus Christ. The church has long understood that the ark prefigures Christ. Christ is the one in whom we find refuge from the storm. Jesus Christ is the one in whom God shuts us in and delivers us through the storm of wrath against sin. God promised to send a Savior as certainly as he promised to deliver Noah and his family through the storm of his wrath. And as certainly as he has kept his promise to Noah, he will keep his promise to us. Jesus Christ is our refuge, and he is our only refuge. There is salvation in no other. Scripture is clear. God has promised judgment, and he will keep that promise. But he's also promised salvation in Jesus Christ and him alone. Faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from our sins is how we enter into the ark. That God would close the door behind us. That there would be no threat to us in Christ. When we enter into that ark, God himself secures us. The storm of God's wrath against the ungodly cannot touch us. And before I go on to my last point this morning, I, I need to pause and make this clear. I, I think I probably made it clear, but I'm not going to risk it. I want you to hear this. The judgment of God is coming against all who are not trusting in Jesus Christ and acknowledging that they are sinners before him. But God has provided a means of weathering the storm in Jesus Christ. Is Christ your refuge? Are you trusting in him and him alone? Are you believing his word, submitting to his rule as your king? Repenting when you sin, grieving and hating your sin? Do you know yourself to be in rebellion against God? And therefore under his judgment, with no hope of escape unless Jesus Christ saves you? If you've not believed the promise of the coming judgment and entered into the ark that is Jesus Christ, trust in Christ this morning and you will find refuge in him. Finally, this morning, we find a message for those of us who are in Christ. Even as Noah was called to preach as the ark was built, we are called to take this good news to the world. We, we could stop here this morning and the gospel will have been proclaimed. But for those who know that Jesus Christ is the only refuge from the coming storm of God's wrath, there is one more point that must be made and it rises up out of Scripture. We must proclaim righteousness to the lost world. We must tell them of the coming wrath and of the only refuge. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, 
says this about God's judgment and his salvation. Listen carefully. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald, that is a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that they saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Here's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, this is our message. The judgment of God is coming. The judgment of God is coming, but God has provided a way. And just like he was patient in the days of Noah, but judgment came and none escaped it. Just like he delivered Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, but Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was so thorough that even this week I found an article of archaeologists saying, we think maybe we might have found Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been about 4,000 years, and we think maybe we might have found, maybe, Sodom and Gomorrah. And those were just examples. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, these were just examples. These were just God saying, look, I've told you judgment's coming. Let me show you what judgment looks like. Will you believe me? I'm a God who keeps my word. I have told you judgment's coming, and there's a day coming when it will not be yet another iteration, not another example, not another foreshadowing it will be the final judgment, and there will be no other. Noah's preaching. There is a, a sense in which it, the language of fill has, has been common already, hasn't it? And we're not done yet. Uh, in the, the weeks to come, we're going to see God giving that command again to fill the earth, to fill the earth. There is everything in the text here today to suggest that God called Noah not just to build an ark, but to fill it. Look at verses 19, chapter 6, verses 19 and following. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And this is not the only place, as you know, because we just read through the text that that there's an emphasis on filling the ark. Noah was to go into the ark. He was to take his wife with him into the ark, his three sons and their wives into the ark, and representatives of the entire animal kingdom into the ark, both clean and unclean. Noah was commanded to fill the ark, and as he preaches, it is Noah's hope that some will believe and enter into the ark. 
the ark is Jesus Christ. And inasmuch as it is Jesus Christ, it is the church, his body. To, to make this clear, to, to map this narrative over the top of redemptive history and where we stand in it now, th this is what I want you to see. We stand between God telling Noah, I'm going to come in judgment and none will survive. And the judgment falling. Even as Noah built the ark, we are called to prepare for that day, not only personally, but to prepare for that day. The building and filling of the ark anticipates the proclamation of the gospel that goes out so that the church of God is being built, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. One stone upon another, Jesus Christ as the foundation. This is not uh, a, a, a little, you know, just a little note somewhere in the bottom of your Bible. The testimony of Scripture taken together makes it clear that we are called as the instruments of Jesus Christ to be building the church. And we do that by proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world. We are building this church, filling this church, even as Noah built the ark and filled the ark in anticipation of the judgment and the salvation of God. I'll close with this this morning. This is reality. There are other details to the reality, but there are no more important details to the reality of the very existence that we enjoy. God has made all things. We are in rebellion against our maker. His wrath is coming against all of those in rebellion against him, and he has provided a way to escape that wrath in Jesus Christ. And those of us who know Christ and are hidden in Christ, those of us who have a seat on the ark are called to tell everybody that we can about the coming wrath and about the salvation that's been provided, that we would build and fill that ark to the glory of God. That's our calling in the world, Christian. I'm excited about the, the year to come, uh, the work that Billy's doing in leading us as a session, uh, the session's excitement about the year that we have ahead of us. I hope that you will participate in this. I hope that as we, uh, we, we understand part of, in part our ministry is both to call and to equip. And so I'm calling this morning. I'm, I'm opening up God's word and I'm telling you what it says. It says we're to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. But we also have a responsibility to equip you. And I am so thankful that our session has acknowledged that responsibility and is excited about fulfilling that responsibility. And so I hope in the coming year you'll be excited too. I think you, you need to suspend your apprehension about what evangelism is. Consider who you are. Consider what God has called us to. And consider that there are ways to do it that are perfectly consistent with your personality and the way that God made you. Let's give this a chance. I'm excited about it. The, the flood is one of the greatest instances in the history of the, in the Old Testament where God reveals to us his judgment and his salvation, and he calls us to be a part of that salvation. So, brothers and sisters, I hope we will. Let's pray.